We do welcome you, whether you are a part of our online campus or whether you're here at East Brainerd. Maybe uh, you are traveling this weekend because of the Labor Day uh, weekend. We're so glad to have you with us and to have you join us. And if you're watching online because you are traveling, be safe as you're making your way uh, to see family or whatever it is you might be doing and then coming back uh, into town. But whether you are here right now or whether you are there, wherever it might be, we thank you for making us part of your day. And I want you to say something with me. You're going to see it on the screen. The way you see your life shapes your life. Say that. All right, now I want you to look at the person that's next to you and say that same thing because you really you are talking to them too, all right? So say that to them. If there's nobody there, just make it up. The way you see your life shapes your life, everybody. Your perspective, the way that you see the world around you, the way that you see yourself, the way that you see your purpose, it impacts your values, it impacts and it determines how you spend your time and your money. It influences the way that you use your talents and, and the, way in which you, the way in which you prioritize your relationships. All of these things are affected by the way that you see your life. So here's what I want you to think about. How do you fill in the following blank? Life is a what? Well, what, what is that? So somebody say something. What do you think life is? Life is what? A gift? I heard life's a box of chocolates over here, right? I was waiting. I was wondering. Some of you were like very spiritual. You were like, life is a gift from the Lord. You know, and others are like, it's like a box of chocolates. You know, I mean, that's, we have all types that are, that are here today. Uh, but now think about it for a minute. Life is a circus, and, and maybe you are living in orchestrated chaos. Or life is a roller coaster, and you're just dealing with all the ups and downs. Or life is a gift, or life is a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Maybe life is a dance, and you learn as you go. Maybe life is a puzzle, and your life has a couple of the pieces missing. Maybe that's what life is. But how you fill in this blank more than you realize, impacts you. and impacts your values, your priorities, your goals. And, and, and all of this is determined by your life view. So if I ask for a picture that symbolizes what you put in that blank, a picture that symbolizes your life view, what image would come to mind? You see, that image is your life metaphor. It describes how how you feel about how life should work. And, and it, it could be conscious or it could be unconscious. But there are certain ways that you think, well, this is the way that life should work. And this is how things should happen. And you can take a picture and you can put it right there in your mind. And you can see it and you can say, yes, this is what my life is all about. Now, a lot of people like to express their life metaphor in the clothes that they wear or they, in jewelry that they buy, the cars that they drive. Maybe it's hairstyles and, or maybe it's even a tattoo. And all express your life metaphor. And this is all well and good until it's not. Because maybe you've known people who have decided to, to make known their life metaphor and it ends up like this. I'm waiting as you read it. That's right. No pen, no gain. I don't really think that's what they were going for. And here's another one. I know this one's going to be a little dark, but it says, never don't give up. That's right. Never don't give up. Think about it. I don't think this is what John Bon Jovi was singing. It is, is my life. 
it is, is? I don't think that was it. And I definitely know that the compass does not look like this. <laughs> Which way do I go? Which way do I go? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they should have planned ahead a little bit better like this person. That's their life metaphor, right? I mean, they're living it right here. Oh, and if you've ever experienced this, I guess you know how this next person feels. You live with no regrets, right? That's how you do it. Live with no regrets. Hey, look, before you run out and get a good or a bad tattoo that expresses who you are and what you're all about, you know, you might want to consider whether or not you have based your life on a faulty metaphor. You see, I think there are too many people who are going through life believing that a faulty metaphor is going to lead them to their best life. You know, some people think that well, life is, life is just a party and their primary pursuit is having fun. And some people think that life is a race and so they, they speed from one day to the next. Others say, well, life is a game or it's a battle, it's a contest. And they prioritize winning above all else. The way that you see your life shapes your life. So, so just think for a moment, is it potentially possible, is it possible perhaps that your life has been shaped by a flawed metaphor? Shakespeare wrote, to thine own self be true. And maybe you believe that there is nothing better than, than being guided by your inner compass. It sounds good, I mean it does, being true to yourself the fact that right or wrong, good or bad, it's all based upon how you feel right there in that moment. You're the captain of your ship. You're the, you're the one that is directing everything that is going on in your life. You're the author of your own story. It sounds really great. DJ Snake and Lil John saying, turn down for what? Right? And, and, and maybe you're wondering, hey, why should I, why should I stop having a good time? Why should I stop having a good time? Because life is short and, and I just need to live it up and I don't need to turn anything down. I need to enjoy things while it all lasts. Or maybe like the Simpsons character, C. Montgomery Burns. Your life's focus is on increasing wealth and power. It's survival of the fittest. And it's pretty simple. You consume or you'll be consumed. Now look, these are just a few of the pseudo- live for your best life metaphor that's kind of out there that, that ends up shaping so many of our lives. And it all sounds good. Go out and chart your own course and, and, and enjoy each moment and achieve more and more. But the problem is that while each of these may produce just moments of fulfillment, the end result of the journey is an emptiness that, that all the partying and all the accumulating and, and all the self-discovery cannot fill. And so that's why a couple of weeks ago I told you that God has promised to guide us to our best life. And the Lord says, I will guide you. I, I'm going to guide you along the best pathway for your life. And I'm going to advise you. And I'm going to watch over you. God says, I want you to enjoy what's best. And if you'll listen to me, I will lead you there. I'm going to advise you along the way. I'm going to help you know which way you need to go. I'm going to remind you of the obstacles. And I'm going to be there watching over you, keeping a watchful eye. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be concerned or worried. You know, the whole premise of this series is that we've tried everything else. 
I mean, we've tried everything else in our society to enjoy our best life. So why don't we try God? Why don't we give God an opportunity to show us what life can be like? I mean, have you ever thought or considered how God views your life? Have you thought about that? How God views your existence? I mean, what purpose does God have for you? What does he desire? Is there a metaphor that adequately expresses what God sees when he, when he looks at you? You know, I think scripture actually gives us a couple of different metaphors that point to God's view of our life. And today I just want to focus on one just for a few minutes, all right? See, from God's point of view, our lives are a test and our lives are a trust. And I don't think there is a better image that represents God's view of our life than an altar. And the biblical story that highlights this the best is found in Genesis 22, where we read that God tested Abraham. Now look, we know from Scripture that God does not tempt anyone with sin, so, so what kind of test is actually taking place here? Well, simply, God is testing how Abraham views life. God is going to test how Abraham views his existence. And he intentionally tests the depth of Abraham's devotion. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and I want you to go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. The boy's name means laughter. And for some years, he had brought laughter to Abraham in Sarah's tent. You might remember that Abraham was around 100 years old when the child of promise was born, and he and Sarah had waited decades for this son to come into their life. And he had ordered now his entire life around this boy. And now he is being tested because heaven wants to know if Abraham's trust in God is, is, is foundational or is his trust in the boy. Is, does he trust more in God or does he trust more, more in the boy that God gave him? You see, God knew that Abraham was in danger of loving Isaac more than he loved God himself. He was in danger of loving the gift more than he loved the giver. He was in danger of loving the promise one, more than the one who promised. And one of the things that I think we need to continue to learn about God is that he will never take anything other than preeminence in our life. You see, God doesn't just want a piece of your heart. God wants your total heart. He doesn't want just a place in your life. He wants your life, all lock, stock, and barrel. You see, God deserves and God demands and God desires preeminence in our life. And so we sit here and say, well, that's great, but how do we know, how do we know if God's number one? I mean, how do we know if we're truly laying it on the line for the Lord? And I think what we need to do is ask what, what I've heard called the worship question. And that is, who or what is in the position of glory in your life? Who or what do I glorify? I mean, maybe you glorify yourself. Or maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's your job. Or maybe somehow it's a gift that you have. Maybe it's money. Who or what is it that you glorify? Hey, let me let you say another phrase with me. Soli Deo Gloria. Ready? Soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. It was one of the five fundamental beliefs of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria. And here's what it means in our life. Whenever we have to choose between God and anything else, God wins. 
God wins. Always. Every time. Every day. Soli Deo Gloria. You see, if I'm choosing between God and my family, or, or God and my possessions, or God and my abilities, or God and my opportunities, or God and my desires, God always should win. Always. But sadly, I know that there are some of us who are here today who will never reach their full spiritual potential and serve God effectively because you love your family more than you love the God who gave you your family. You love your abilities more than the God who gave you those abilities. You, you love your possessions and, and you love the money more than the God who gave you the opportunity to enjoy those things. You see, we love the gift. We love the gifts more than the giver. And, and understand, it's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy these things. It's just that the gifts can never outshine the giver. I think we all need to take a trip up Mount Moriah. We need to take all of our hopes and dreams and aspirations. And we need to lay them out on the altar of God and say, you know what? God, life is a test of devotion and I'm giving it all over to you. But not only is it a test of devotion, it is also a trust of provision. Now look, Abraham has a problem. And, he, and here it is. How can God ask for the child of promise and still keep the promise, right? I mean, he has to be able to reconcile what God has asked him to do with Isaac to what God has promised to do through Isaac. Abraham must decide whether he trusts that where God guides, God can actually provide. In verse 3, we read that early the next morning, Abraham got up. He loaded, he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, we read that Abraham looked up and he saw that place that was there in the distance. And he said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship. And then we'll come back to you. Do you understand what Abraham is saying? He's saying, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to offer my son as a sacrifice. And when I am done, we are going to come back. Now look, th these are not words of unconscious prophecy. These are words of unwavering trust. Let me let the Hebrews writer give you the explanation of this kind of trust. He said Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he says he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now we know that in our Bibles there are stories about resurrection. Individuals raised from the dead. Individuals who were no longer breathing. They no longer had life. But up until this point in scripture, you do not read a story like that. Up until this point in biblical history, there is no record of anyone being raised from the dead. But Abraham concludes that God has made a promise. And he knows what tomorrow is going to look like and how that the promise, he says, he believes is going to be fulfilled. And because he has absolute trust in what tomorrow will be, it causes him to make the sacrifice today. You see, he reasoned that resurrection, although he had never heard of such a thing, was more compatible with the character of God than contradiction. And so he approached this test of faith with a strong trust that God keeps his promises. Where God guides, God provides. Now, if you've heard me walk through this passage of Scripture before, you know I'd like to ask, 
how in the world, how did Abraham explain this to Isaac? Right? I mean, how does he have this conversation with his son? I mean, maybe he sat him down and told him, you know, do you remember how that, do you remember how my mom, your mom and I have, have told you how that God has promised to bless all the nations of the earth through us? Maybe he talked about how that his name means laughter because that's what everybody did when they heard that Sarah was going to be having this child in her advanced age. They laughed. Maybe they talked about his first steps. Maybe they talked about his first words. Maybe they talked about how he has a hard time driving a donkey. I don't know what they talked about. I don't know what the conversation was, but, but, but maybe he just reminded him that, you know what, whatever is given to us by Yahweh belongs to Yahweh. And we always obey wherever, wherever Yahweh sends. And maybe he just told him that God had asked for him. All I know is that it says there in Genesis 22 that Abraham responded to his son when his son asked, where's the sacrifice? And he said, God will provide. God will provide. And I want you to picture as he's going to this place and he's thinking through as a father, God, I'm putting it all on you. I mean, I'm putting all this in your basket because I know that somehow you're going to provide. And he binds his son's hands and he thinks God's going to provide. And he unsheaths his knife and he says, God is going to provide. And, and he's looking around and he's saying, somehow, some way, God is going to provide. And, and I can just picture it being something that just wells up inside of him. And I don't know if he shouted it out loud or not, but I'm sure that some of you have done that at night. I'm sure that you've done that when you've been in situations where you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And you say, but God is going to provide. I believe that. Because I trust in his provision. You've been there. You've been in the hospital. You've, you've stayed up with your children. You have, you've been there when the job has been taken away from you. You've been there when your own health is failing. You've been there when there's been difficulties between you and family members, between you and church members. There's, there's been these issues that you just don't know how you're going to get from point A to point B and you say, God's going to provide. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham, it says, looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by his horns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. God provided. There it was. Because God never wanted Isaac. God wanted Abraham. He wanted Abraham and all that Abraham was and all that Abraham was ever going to be because from God's perspective, life is a test of devotion. And life is a trust of provision. And friends, each day you and I must choose if God's going to win. Every day you and I must choose in whom we're going to place our trust. You see, Abraham understood that this choice, he understood that this choice, he understood what it was. It was worship. He said, the boy and I, we're going to go over there and we're going to worship and then we're going to come back. He said, but wait a minute, they were going to sacrifice. And yes, 
Because that's exactly what worship is. See, I want you to think about it. For four, not for 400 years, but for 4,000 years, people have worshipped God doing this. They've worshipped God with their, their, their arms stretched up to heaven, with, with their hands open. And you say, well, why, why that posture? Well, why, why that posture, holding up the empty hands? And I think it's because worshipers cannot be clutchers. Worshippers can't be clutchers where you're always having to hold on to things. You see, Abraham's whole life has been a series of learning this lesson. Let go of your home, Abraham, and go to where I'm going to send you. Let go of your country. Let go of your family. Let go of Lot. Let go of Ishmael. Let go of your timeline on how you think this promise is going to be fulfilled. Everything for Abraham was this moment of let go and let go and let go. And so when you read Genesis 22 and you see him going up the mountain, don't see a devastated, broken man. Instead, I want you to see a man who is going to worship. He's learned what worship is. See, it's the first time it ever appears in your Old Testament. The first time the word is there. First time it appears in your New Testament is in Matthew chapter 2 when the wise men come to see the young Jesus and they come bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh and they say, where is the child? For we have come to worship. You see, worship at its essence is bringing God an offering. And it's why as disciples of Jesus we are told to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's how we display our true and proper worship. It is the willing and, and joyful sacrifice of myself that springs from a heart that is filled with trust in God. You see, our, our best life begins when we choose to be all in and when we say we're going to be sold out and, and all the chips are going to be pushed to the middle of the table and we're going to crawl up on the altar shouting, God, I'm giving it all to you. That's the worshiper that God looks for. And he says, when that is your life, you begin to understand what it, the best life actually looks like. It's the message of this story. You see, Genesis 22 is actually a metaphor in itself because it forever declares what the best life with God is supposed to be. Complete devotion and absolute trust in a God who promises to provide. And if you didn't know it or not, that's exactly what Abraham named this place of worship. He named it. He named it Yahweh Yahra, which means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And provide comes from two words, pro and vision. Pro before and vision to see. Abraham is saying, I'm going to name this place of worship the God who sees ahead of time. The God who sees ahead of time. Because as Abraham and Isaac started up on one side of the mountain, there was a ram that started up on the other side. And Abraham and Isaac, they couldn't see the ram. But Abraham the entire way says, God's going to provide. Dad, where's the sacrifice? God's going to provide. God's going to provide. God's going to provide. They couldn't see the ram. But God saw the ram because God saw the need. And God provided because he sees ahead of time. And friends, there are things in our lives that Yahweh Yara can see. He knows things about your life that you don't even know. 
He knows things about my life that I cannot understand. He's Yahweh Yara. So go ahead and climb up on the altar of God and sacrifice those pseudo-life metaphors that promise fulfillment but deliver emptiness. See your existence from his point of view. Live a life of worshipful devotion and trust. Choose him over everything else. And if you will do that, you will begin to see what it means to live your best life. God always wins. And God will always provide. Can we praise him this morning for that as we stand together and sing?